you're listening to Q Marriage Mentors with Jeff Lutz, a podcast featuring conversations with remarkable lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender couples. What makes great relationships work? Jeff will ask the questions. You'll hear the answers. Together, we'll learn. If you've been following this podcast, you know that I usually have conversations with some pretty remarkable lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender couples. But today I'm going to break from the format a bit to welcome a very special guest. Our guest today is Terry Real, and Terry is the founder of the Relational Life Institute in Arlington, Massachusetts. He's written several books, including most recently, The New Rules of Marriage, What You Need to Know to Make Love Work. And that's a practical guide for both couples and couples therapists. He's appeared as the relation expert for Good Morning America and ABC News, and his work has been featured in numerous articles, as well as on media venues such as Oprah, 2020, The Today Show, CNN, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and many others. And the really cool thing is that we're honored to have Terry as our keynote speaker at the 6th Annual Contemporary Relationships Conference which is going to be held May 3rd through 4th in Austin. And to purchase tickets to hear Terry and attend the conference, you can go to www.contemporaryrelationships.com. Okay, so with all that said, let me say, Terry, it's an honor to speak with you today, and thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, well, thank you, Jeff. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate it. So, Terry, you were a family therapist and just kind of chugging along and doing your thing, and how did it blow up and become this national uh, model that you now train people in? Yeah. Well, back in the 90s, I wrote a book called I Don't Want to Talk About It, Overcoming the Secret Legacy of Male Depression. And Jeff, I don't know whether to be proud or ashamed of my field, but uh, it was the first ever book written about male depression. Before I wrote that book, depression was always a woman's disease just like alcoholism had been a man's disease. And the book did really well. There were an estimated 6 million depressed men in America at any given point. So I started getting calls from Topeka and, and Austin and, and uh, California and wherever saying, is there somebody that does your work here? And I would try to refer them as best I could. But after a couple of years, I said, look, if you're desperate enough and you have the resources, come to Boston, where I practice, and spend a couple days with me. And what evolved was what I call a two-day relational intervention. And it's still the bulk of my practice, where people fly in from wherever on marital desk door, uh, and um, nobody else has been able to help them. I mean, we have two days of face-to-face time. At the end of our time, we're deciding you're either breaking up or you're back on track, but it's one or the other. And um, I noticed two things about these interventions. The first is that I had a really good batting average. I'd say 19 out of 20 couples did okay. Um, the second is that I broke most of all of the rules I'd learned about how to do couples therapy in couples therapy school. <laughs> Okay, so it, it launched in the way that you just described. And 
Talk a little bit more about the rules that you realized you were breaking to be so successful with your batting average. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about this at the at the conference. Um, um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I first learned couples therapy, the cardinal rule was thou shalt not take sides. And particularly, you don't side with a man against uh, a, a woman against a man. And uh, what I found is that one of the distinguishing characteristics of this method that I call RLT, Relational Life Therapy, uh, one of the distinguishing characteristics is we take sides. And so we call it like we see it. Not all problems are 50-50. Uh, some are 99-1. And um, we, um, uh, we tell the truth about that which I'm sure uh, many couples find so refreshing. Well, they do. And, they, and that's coupled with the second issue, which is uh, mo- almost all therapy deals with issues of shame and helping people come up from the one down of shame. And that's blessed work. I, I, I'm not dissing that. We do that too. But in RLT, along with working with shame, we also work with the other self-esteem disorder, grandiosity. And just like all of us go one down into feeling defective and unlovable and inadequate in some ways, we all go one up into feeling superior and judgmental and contemptuous of either other people or the rules. Uh, and that's all grandiosity. And most therapy does not tackle grandiosity. But I'm going to tell you, if you're a couples therapist, you have to know how to not just help people come up from the one down of shame, but also down from the superior uh, perch of grandiosity. You cannot be intimate from either the one down shame position or the one up grandiose position. Do you see grandiosity as just the flip side of shame, another uh way in which shame is expressed or manifested, or do you see it as a separate uh, kind of entity in and of itself? It depends on who you're speaking to. Uh, Everybody always goes to, well, underneath that shame is, underneath that grandiosity, there's really shame and and inadequacy, and and now we would say trauma. And um, the idea is that if we could just love up that little boy or little girl underneath the bully, or the chronic philanderer or the liar or whatever they are. If we could just let up the little boy or little girl underneath that, it would kind of disappear. And I say uh, there are two groups that have this belief that it, you can love somebody up out of grandiosity. One group are codependent women, and uh, the other group uh, are therapists. <laughs> <laughs> But it's wishful thinking. You have to deal with grandiosity per se. It's like drinking or rage. You have to deal with the issue per se and then get to what's underlying. Just get to what underlying doesn't, doesn't do it. And, and you know what's interesting is they did research on narcissism and it turns out that 50% of narcissists are escaping shame by flying into grandiosity, what everybody thinks. The other 50% just think they're better than everybody else. You can be grandiose without any shame at all. You can be grandiose with simple, false 
empowerment. If your parents don't set appropriate limits on you, if they pump you up, if they use you as special in some ways, that's all invitations into grandiosity. Do you remember the moment in which you got this insight as a couples therapist or a family therapist that grandiosity was really just as important as shame? Well, uh, to be honest, what I kept seeing is that grandiosity was ruining people's relationships. Mm. You know, when you when you're in a shame space, you implode. When you're in a grandiose space, you explode. So anger and self-righteous indignation is grandiose. Drinking and uh, self-medication are portals into grandiosity. Intoxication is a form of grandiosity as far as I'm concerned. That's why we like it. Grandiosity feels good. Shame feels bad, but grandiosity feels good. It's harder for us to work with. But it's grandiosity that uh, fuels Bad behavior, offensive behavior, or irresponsible behavior, not shame primarily. And so, for, for example, partner A brings in partner B to see me because partner B is insufferable. You know, they're passive aggressive or they make contracts and don't keep them or they lie or they manipulate or they cheat or they rage or they control, or they withdraw, or they, or they, or they. And I look at them and about taking sides. The first thing I think is, hey, you're right. He is impossible. You're right about that. And I would be pulling my hair out if I was living with him too. So uh, I take sides. And I redress the power imbalance in the couple. I side with the disempowered one. And I bring down the falsely empowered one. I have a saying, I want the weak to uh, stand up and I want the mighty to melt. So um, it's anyway, partner A brings in partner B so that a therapist like me can take them on and help them. And 99 out of 100 therapists simply will not take on grandiose people we're taught not to we're taught to be nice to them yes you know i do my my beat are people's on uh, on death door uh flying in from all over to to see me and they all have one two four so far the record eight therapists and not one therapist has taken on the grandiose partner Mm -hmm. and when i do when I do say, listen, let me tell you something, Jeff, that your anger is over the top. And the only reason why you don't see it is because you grew up in an angry family with a raging father and your, your thermostat is busted on this point, but your partner is right about you. Your anger is insufferable. When I say that, the other partner usually doubles over and starts crying. Yes. From relief. Finally, somebody sees that two plus two equals four here. Someone gets it. Someone gets it. And that's the language they always use, too. Oh, my God, somebody got it. And Terry, I've seen you on videotapes uh, working with couples, and um, I've noticed that you are very artful in the way that you take sides and confront the grandiosity. You don't just say, hey, you're a jerk. You. No. <laughs> I've, I've seen you say things like, 
um, hey, I've got some good news and some bad news, and which do you want first? And yeah. they'll usually say the good news, and you'll give them a compliment, and then you'll follow up with this mirroring of what you see that is uh, troubling in the relationship, the grandiosity. Right, right, right. And it usually shows up in my office. You know, I, I, I had a, a gay couple come in and um, partner B uh, argued with everything that his partner said, argued, and then argued with everything that I said, sentence by sentence. You know, he's one of these guys, you say it's raining outside and he says, well, you know, it was earlier. It's cloudy now. It'll probably rain again. <laughs> uh, and I called him out on it. Uh, uh, you're too argumentative to live with. I can understand why your partner is fed up with you. Then I turn to the partner and I say, listen, on a scale of one to 10, saying uh, that we'll say Bill is uh, uh, just bellicose and argumentative about everything and it'll drive you crazy and block up any kind of communication or negotiation between the two of you. Hey, how right how accurate was that description of Bill? And the partner will go, oh, I say on a scale of one to 10, the partner will go 10. And then I get to say, and in terms of what's critical for your relationship and transforming your relationship to where you want it to be, how critical is this issue? 10. And then I turn to Bill and I go, you know, if I were you, I'd take this pretty seriously. Mm. Now the art I call joining through the truth. Any fool can clobber somebody with the truth, but I've got a two-year training program. It takes two years to figure out how to lovingly confront uh, somebody with grandiose traits or behavior in a way that leaves them feeling like you're on their side. When we confront people, they feel closer to us. Yes, yes. You you join with them, so they want to work with you more in other sessions. Yeah, over and over again. Oh, my God, I got more out of the, the first 15 minutes with you than I got out of three years with Dr. So and so because I'm, I tell them the truth. And within 15 minutes, I'm saying, look, this is what you're doing to blow your foot off. And they go, oh, yeah, I, I can see that I am. And we're, we're off and running. I don't even know, to be honest, what Dr. So-and-so talked to him about for three years. Yeah. You know, one, of the things that, one of the things I say is the thing that you say at the water cooler or the coffee machine after the session, I can't believe what a Casper milk toast that spineless guy was. I can't believe what a witch that woman was. That's what you should be saying in the session in a respectful way. That Those are the issues. That's the therapy. But we don't. We shy away from it. Yes. And I know at the conference you're going to talk a little bit about patriarchy. So can you talk a little bit more today about that in terms of how it relates to grandiosity? One of my sayings is that leading men and women into health and intimacy is synonymous with leading them beyond patriarchy. And we can define patriarchy in a number of ways. But for right now, let's just say traditional gender roles which is an overly accommodating, uh, inwardly resentful woman coupled with a, um, uh, overtly driven, uh, covertly shame-based man. This is America's power couple. This is the norm. Uh, the problem is that it's got nothing to do with intimacy. 
patriarchy wasn't built for intimacy. Patriarchy doesn't like intimacy. It likes adaptation. It likes what we call the adaptive child part of you. The one that will work 25 hours a day and be grateful. That's what patriarchy likes. Intimacy is a brand new demand. It's historically brand new to expect intimacy in our relationships, our long-term relationships. And um, we have to leave behind these roles. Women need to recover firm, loving voice. And men need to open their ears and open their hearts and open their throats and communicate to one another. And and so what do you notice when you're working with two women or two men in a couple um, in terms of patriarchy? How does it surface in that kind of relationship? Well, I'll probably say this at the, at the conference, too. But people generally uh, have this idealization, believe it or not, of same-sex couples that if you're gay or lesbian – uh, or tran- uh, transsexual or whatever, that you have broken the mold of patriarchy and you're no longer sway the patriarchal mores and thinking. That's just bullshit. Yeah. Gay couples are just as patriarchal as straight couples. Lesbian couples are just as patriarchal as, as straight couples. We're, we're, this is the water we're all swimming in. We, we fish, gay or straight, whatever. And, um, because it's around us all over the place. It, it is how it, it, it's the underlying categories that we don't even think about male and female, strong and weak. I had a gay couple and when they had a fight, the fight would last for five days. Mm. And I, I said, well, how would it end? A good therapist question, by the way. How did it end? How do you end it? So well, after five days, we just get kind of tired of it, and we say we don't want to fight. And I say, that's a really great thing. And let me tell you about my marriage. Belinda and I do that, too, except we usually say it after about 15, 20 minutes, <laughs> not five days. What's up with you guys? And what they both said is that neither of them wanted to appear weak. Weak. It was chicken. Who had been, they want to blink first and get conciliatory. And, and at which point I said, why not? It's wonderful to be conciliatory. What is your problem? And the problem was patriarchy. The problem is I've got two male gay clients trying to out macho each other. Yes. This stuff is ubiquitous. And so you you challenge, you take sides and you confront the grandiosity and you get their attention. But to our listeners who perhaps are thinking, oh, boy, yeah, I, I've got some of this grandiosity or my partner does. What did, what advice do you give couples for how to work on that? Well, don't work on your partner's grandiosity. Don't work on your partner's anything. You work on yourself. You can, you can tell your partner what it feels like to be on the receiving end of his or her behavior sometimes. Uh, that's about it. You're not their therapist. You're not their coach. You don't get to say what their issues are. That's intrusive. But you do get to say, I don't like living with, uh, these seven behaviors of yours. Uh, and, uh, don't call a, your partner names, but break it down to the grandiose behaviors and stand up to them. 
And that's a part of a really important part of your work with couples, right? In some ways, you work more to empower the disempowered person to stand up to the grandiosity than you do just as much as challenging the grandiose person. Yeah, I don't get out ahead of the disempowered person. I'll get fired if I do. And I teach that to students. It's not my fight. It's your fight. Are you willing to fight for it? And once the disempowered partner finds a voice, and by the way, the disempowered partner for the therapist listening almost always has found the voice because they're the ones that make the call. Yes. And somehow they drag that grandiose person in to see it. How did they get that person into the office? That's what I want to know. That's empowerment. There's some strength and some power in that. That's right. However, but then, but then once the disempowered partner, if, if it is, and there's some partner, some couples where it isn't a, a power imbalance. It's more 50 50. There are couples like that, but there are many couples where it isn't. And once the disempowered disempowered partner speaks up and finds voice and is able to say, look, this, 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 and this, it just has to change. And they mean it. Then I can come in under that and I can say, listen, I got to tell you something. Your partner's right. What you're doing would be an anathema to most people. I'm sorry. Uh, let's talk about where in your childhood you learned how to behave this way because it's not right and it's not going to get you what you want. Do some couples um, get worse for a while once the disempowered person begins to stand up for themselves? Well, that's where I come in. The couple can get worse if the disempowered partner starts standing up uh, under the coaching of an individual therapist, but there's nobody helping the other partner come down. And in, in that case, as the disempowered one rebels and finds voice, the other one can escalate. But it, this is why it's couples therapy and not individual therapy. I've got the grandiose person in my office. And so if they start to spin out, I can reel them back in again. I I can support the disempowered one in what they're saying and confront the falsely empowered one to come down off of some of these rotten behaviors. But it takes me to look them in the eye and say, listen, I'm so sorry, but this repertoire of behaviors you picked up, they're really losers. And this isn't the best of you. This isn't who you really want to be. Let's talk about who you really want to be. You know, I reach into the best part of the man or woman. And it's you and me, this decent best part of you, forming a therapeutic alliance to deal with these less savory, immature parts of you. Um, It's a trick of separating out the person's grandiose grandiosity from who they are as people. I love you as a person. I am casting a very sober eye on your miserable behavior. And I do both at the same time. Terry, I know that uh, also your work involves a fair amount of uh, looking at trauma and exploring trauma. Can you talk a little bit about how your model is similar or different than other models in terms of working with trauma? Well, trauma is really key 
In, in, in order to understand this, let me just say a word about it. In, in the system that I work with, the, the psyche is a three-part system. There is the famous wounded child part of you, which is what most trauma work focuses on, very young, first moments of life to about five or six. And that's the part of you that is just on the receiving end of the abuse or neglect and tends to be pretty overwhelmed. Then on the other end, there's the functional adult part of you, prefrontal cortex. That's the part that can reason and pause and be intentional and be deliberate. That's the part that can count to 10 and not scream at your kid or your partner. Uh, between these two is what we call the adaptive child part of you. This is the part of you that adapted. So, for example, if you had an intrusive mother, let's say, then the adaptive child part of you may operate behind walls. You protected yourself from that intrusion by putting up big walls, psychological wall. I have a saying, the bigger the wall, the bigger the intrusion. Show me the thumbprint and I'll tell you about the thumb. So the adaptive child part of you is the part of you that coped with whatever was going on. And it's an immature part of you masquerading as an adult. Most of the people that I see are live most of their lives out of their adaptive children thinking that that's an adult, but it's not. Adaptive children tend to be black and white. They tend to be harsh. Uh, they tend to be rigid. Uh, they're just immature. It's a child's version of what a grown-up is supposed to look like. Now, what I'm doing in the trauma work is I work with both inner children. Not just the wounded child, cry, 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 but the adolescent or latency age adaptive child, because that's the part of you that's fueling all of your bad behavior in your relationships. That's the child I want to get to. So it's very different in which part of the traumatized person we tend to work with. And it's also different in that it's not primarily release work. The healing of trauma does not come when you unburden the energy of whatever you took on. That's part of it. But it's primarily relational work. It's reparenting. You learn to deal with the immature parts of you over and over and over again. You know, one of the things I say is maturity comes when we care for our inner children and don't foist them off on our partners to take care of. Yes. And I think that is different. Many models do focus on the release part of the trauma. Yes. And couples therapy right now, there's a lot of emphasis on you getting each partner to be a, an exquisite holding environment for the other one and heal the other. I think that's all bad boundaries. That's just nails on a chalkboard to me. You're responsible for you. Your partner's responsible for him or her. The relationship will go however it goes. I practice detachment from the outcome, from Al-Anon. And um, you do your best on your side of the seesaw. That's the only thing you can control. So, Terry, on May 4th, uh, Saturday, May 4th, you're going to speak in Austin at the Contemporary Relationships Conference. And the title of your keynote is Relational Empowerment. Love Beyond Patriarchy. Can you just say a few words to give us a little teaser about what you're going to share? You know, 
one of the things that I've uh, come to realize uh, is that neither men nor women have voice in their relationship. Women don't have voice because it's selfish to have your own wants and needs. A, a quote-unquote good woman under patriarchy is selfless and all-giving. Uh, men don't have voice in their relationships either, although nobody talks about that. We always talk about the voiceless women. But men don't talk in their, men don't have voice in their relationship. It, it, it's unmanly to have wants or needs in your relationship. And what usually happens is that neither is proactive. And uh, no one in relationships is very good at saying, hey, listen, darling, uh, this would work better for me than that. Would you be willing to? What we almost universally do is we're passive. We get what we get, and then we complain about it. That's about the worst behavioral modification program I've ever heard of. So I am about empowering uh, men and women to uh, to move into loving, firm voice. I talk about standing up for yourself with love. And standing up for yourself, for example, standing up for yourself with love is the difference between saying, Jeff, I don't like how you're talking to me. Knock it off. Or saying, Jeff, I want to hear what you have to say. Could you tone it down so I could listen? Which of those two things do you think is going to get hurt? Right. Standing up for yourself with love cherishes the relationship and cherishes the partner at the same time that you're saying no. Nobody knows how to do that. See, under patriarchy, you can either be connected or you can be powerful. But you can't be both at the same time because power is always power over, not power with. And so you lose connection when you step into power and you lose power when you step into connection. A powerless connection is traditionally the feminine role and disconnected power is traditionally the masculine role. Now, teaching people to stand up to each other with loving, cherishing voices I think that that undoes patriarchy, and I think it's really the next step for both men and women. Well, Terry, as a therapist and a podcaster, it's been so much fun and really informative to talk to you today, and I can't wait to hear you at the conference. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Oh, I'm delighted, Jeff, and I'm really honored to be the keynote this year at the conference. I will try to uh, live up to uh, the best I can do for you. I know it's going to be great. Thank you, Terry. You're welcome. Do you know any LGBT couples with interesting stories and wisdom to share on the show? Jeff would love to meet them. So please contact him through the website at qmarriagementors.com. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great week.